0: Honest questions with honest answers. This is Unfiltered, brought to you by the Emergency Medical Minute. The Emergency Medical Minute is
1: excited to announce that we are now offering AMA, PRA, Category 1 credits via online course modules. To access these and for more information, visit our website at www.emergencymedicalminute.com backslash CME courses, or simply click on the link in our show notes and create an account.
0: Welcome back to Unfiltered. We're happy to announce that today we're coming at you from the Emergency Medical Minute studio in the Mile High Ambulance headquarters. EMM has moved into a spacious new space. Maybe I should use another word other than spacious. But uh, we're happy to partner with Mile High Ambulance, their local ambulance uh, company here in Englewood, Colorado, and... They have been gracious enough to share this space with us. Um, we're excited about our partnership and the opportunity to use uh, this space for events and more video and audio content going forward. So we're back at Unfiltered, and it's been a little bit of a break. Full disclosure, I had a baby. Well, I didn't have a baby. My wife had a baby in between the uh, one of our, our most recent uh, recording and now. Um, I've aged 20 years in the last couple of months, uh, but he's awesome. But in order to get us back on track, we've brought in who can only be described as the best possible host and interview subject uh, that we could possibly have here on Unfiltered. So the great Don Stater is with us. You know Don from a number of different uh, parts of EMM. He was the founder. He is now the ex-officio chairman emeritus. Uh, He has a number of flowery titles now, but... But Don's still very much involved in Emergency Medical Minute. He continues to move on to bigger and better things that we'll talk about today and was instrumental in starting this podcast. Don is a dear friend, colleague, uh, just a great human being, and uh, we're, we're lucky to have him. Don, welcome to the next evolution of what was your podcast for a very long time. Thanks, Nick. You
1: must be a little delirious from that baby, because you've definitely <laughs> fluffed me up a little too much. Uh, most viewers or listeners in this case would know that I'm kind of just an idiot who talks medicine,
0: uh, and I'm excited to do so. Talk medicine and life with you. Well, I, I'm, I'm happy that you're here. You uh, you know, you've got a great story, uh, and that's what Unfiltered has always been about, is telling stories. and spending time with people who are changing the world in medicine in different ways. Um, and, uh, and I can't think of somebody who embodies that more than you do. So first and foremost, let's talk about how Don Stater and all of his opioid epidemic relief work have evolved through kind of COVID. Let's, let's, let's start in the present day uh, and kind of walk us through what it's been like as you've uh, stayed in touch with, you know, progression or, or uh, difficulties with the opioid epidemic over the course of the last year or so. What's the landscape looked like now compared to a year ago, pre-COVID?
1: Wow. So we're going to start off heavy. That's right. That's right. (laughs) You pull no punches (laughs) here. That's right. (laughs) Uh, so, So, you know, I think that the big thing that everyone has probably been feeling is the opioid epidemic is getting worse. Uh, and, And there's no doubt about that. Really, the substance use epidemic in the country is getting worse. And there's several factors. The first is the fact that everyone's been suffering, right? People's lives are either diminished, disastrous, or dire. Diminished is what all of us are going through, that we're not seeing family, we're not hanging out with friends, we're more isolated than we ever have been before. Disastrous, if you've lost your job, if you're looking at losing your house and being evicted, that's a disastrous existence. And then dire for some of our people who are already living at the edges, you know, uh, who are homeless. They're losing services, like food banks are closing. Housing is much harder to get into right now because of the pandemic. Um, and, and everyone is suffering. And as people suffer, what people do will oftentimes chemically cope. So alcohol use is way up. Smoking's up. And drug use is up. Now, with opioids, the thing that's very unique with drug use being so increased is that, is that the lethality of drugs is also increasing. So before, before COVID, basically fentanyl was just East Coast, a little dabble maybe in the middle of the country, a little in the West Coast, but most of it was black tar heroin, which is much less potent, much safer, if you want to think of heroin as safe, mm-hmm. than fentanyl. Uh, Just because fentanyl has so much greater range and potency, and people never know when they get into a really strong batch, and that strong batch can be, you know, lethal. Um, And what we've seen with COVID is a proliferation of fentanyl. Fentanyl is now in every state across the nation, and here in Colorado is now much more prevalent than black tar
0: heroin, Mm. which is the first time in our history. Mm. Well, at least we're starting on an uplifting note today, as you (laughs) said. It's important, though. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of optimism right now about vaccines, and there's a lot of optimism about you know, seeing a light at the end of the COVID tunnel, but my impression based on this and our t- discussions elsewhere is that the repercussions of this are going to last for years, you know, you know, from this year of COVID, um, and that's true in a lot of ways, that's true in emergency medicine, that's true in primary care, that's true uh, in, in any subspecialty, you know, uh, the consequences of this are going to linger, but I think it's particularly true with substance abuse. Um, and, you know, I think uh, all of the dynamics that you just described um, are unlikely to change in the short term. Is that a fair assessment?
1: You know, I think that I'm a little more measured in my my forecast for doom and gloom. Um, And there's there's several reasons for that. Um, And I'll point to, let's point to the Vietnam War, right? So in Vietnam...
0: As we do regularly. Yeah, exactly. I'm half Vietnamese, so yeah, <laughs> it's a good
1: place to start. I'm alive because my mom was part of the Vietnamese diaspora. So, diaspora. So hey, why not Vietnam? Perfect. Um, but we know that a lot of our service members, when they went over to Vietnam, used heroin, right? Now, when they got home, not all of them became heroin addicts. A lot of them were using heroin to chemically cope, right? And, and I hope that when this pandemic is over and people, people get back to normal lives, to seeing family, to seeing friends, that they're able to leave behind a lot of their substance use. Now, I don't think everyone will. In fact, I do think that the uh, substance use epidemics will be worsened because of COVID, but I don't think that we're gonna hopefully, uh, so I should say, hopefully we don't maintain the amount of carnage and death that we've been seeing. Just because the last year has been the worst year of opioid and overdose that we've ever seen. I mean, from June 2019 to June 2020, we've lost 81,000 Americans Mm. to overdose. That's the most ever, right? We've also, from 1999 to today, have lost over 850,000 Americans. And even with COVID, the thing with COVID is COVID kills the old. If you're over 55, it's the number one cause of death, is COVID. If you're under 50, the number one of cause of death is still overdose, and it's been getting much worse. Mm. Uh, but I'm hopeful. And there's also other things, like treatments become easier. We can prescribe buprenorphine more easily. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot more uh, with that telehealth brings to treatment of opioid use disorders and use disorders, period. Um, so I'm hopeful that we'll also have some good that comes out of the COVID pandemic.
0: Yeah, tell us more about that. Tell us about telemedicine or... Uh, uh, Medication assisted uh, treatment, or some of the things that I know you're working on uh, with your uh, with your consulting groups and, and in your initiatives. Tell me what yeah, kind of so of
1: medication is, med- medication for addiction treatment is is getting easier in terms of you know you can prescribe buprenorphine now over telephone, you don't need an in-person visit. Um, in person visit. In methadone clinics or opioid treatment programs, people are going home with methadone easier. Whereas before it was much more tightly regulated. So we're seeing a liberalization of treatment, which is good. It's actually a good thing that we're making our patients jump through less hoops to get evidence based treatment for their opioid use disorders. Um, we had, and which then got rescinded, a complete Xing of the X waiver. And mm-hmm. that would have been tremendous. Mm-hmm. I do think that would have been one of the best things we could have done to help end the opioid epidemic. Of course, that got rescinded, but we're still lobbying to yeah, fingers crossed. Call, your, cross, call okay. your senator. Yeah, call your <laughs> senator. <laughs> call your congressman.
0: <laughs> is that what people call a congressman for? Yeah, hopefully it should be. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's so many competing priorities now, but, um, but it is one of those that we and the addiction and medical community should be lobbying for. We should... Decrease the barriers rather than put them in place when it comes to people who seek treatment for substance use disorders.
0: Can't talk with Don without talking about drugs. And, you know, uh, it's such an important part of what you do and who you are and, 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 and change, you know, genuine, lasting change that you've made. But it's not everything that you are. Uh, you do a lot. Uh, what else occupies your time these days, with exception of your, well, you can talk about them too, your beautiful family that we know well. But uh, what else is on the plate? Of Don Sader in 2021.
1: Phew, I don't know. Um, so family's number one. Uh, that's that's important. I've also dealt with a, you know, family tragedy as my mom died of COVID. So so that's been a big mm-hmm. adjustment. Um, but there's other other aspects. We still have a documentary that we're pushing out. Uh, we still we have another exciting project we're working on and pain control and how to better better um, advance that. Um, And then I'm doing a bunch of consulting where I try to tell people how to do things better, smarter, faster, more efficiently.
0: (laughs) Uh, they don't listen to me. It's like BASF. What was that old commercial? say, we don't make the things you use. We make the things you use better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so that's been, that's been going too. And it's been a fun way. And then of course I'm still doing emergency medicine. I'm still seeing and touching patients and trying to, you know,
0: make a difference that way. Um, yeah, so life is good. You strike me as somebody. You're a storyteller. You've always been a storyteller. Bullshitter, is actually. <laughs> <laughs> no one bullshits a bullshitter, Don, and you're being interviewed by one right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, but both- you've always been such a great storyteller. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. I think I talked, I texted you about this earlier today about the first time we ever spoke. You, you wove me, you. You told me a tale. You wove me a story about what it was like to be an ER doc at Swedish, and you recruited me hard. And that's why I'm here, uh, you know, in a, in a lot of ways. And I remember that conversation, and and I remember, uh, you know, so many stories that you've told, whether it's Dreamland in Denver or Untamed. You know, that's what EMM was built on, was was your ability to tell stories and your ability to get other people whose stories were equally as fascinating and, and, and engaging and dynamic. What, what stories are you excited to tell in the next year? You know, what, you know, that is what, when I see you, I'm, I'm always excited to hear kind of what that next story is going to look like. Can you give us a a sneak peek?
1: You know, I, I don't know if I think about it in the same context of storytelling, you know? Um, I, I do think stories are very important. I think that's how you get people excited for change. Um, but really, it's it's the base question that I think you're asking is, what do you want to change or what do you want to commit to? What's your purpose going to be within the next year? Mm. Um, and and really, it, it starts with purpose and it starts with the vision. And then the story that you weave around it is what helps you get from point A to point B or helps other people follow you from point A to point B. Um, and I've got a few things I'm really excited about, um, you know, there's, there's, um, a program I'm working on called advanced analgesia, which is kind of the next iteration of Alto, um, which Alto is alternatives to opioids and something we did a few years ago now, starting in 2017 to just help, um, revolutionize pain control in the ED and I think we're doing a lot of cool stuff, right, where we've got a full cupboard of crap that we're using for pain control that's not an opioid, and that's much safer and much more effective in many cases. Um, and what Advanced Analgesia is doing is I'm trying to weave together different things, three, really three different components. Is One, uh, pain psychology, uh, because I think that we do a really crappy job in talking with patients about pain, mm. and it sets them up for a significant amount of suffering. Um, Multimodal analgesia, where I still want all of us to be using Haldol and Tylenol and ketamine and all the things that are in the cupboard. Uh, And then the last one is regional analgesia. So, you know, regional analgesia should not be just something that anesthesiologists do. Uh, We should be doing as many blocks as our anesthesiologists are doing and start really educating ourselves in the emergency department about how to do that because it's definitive pain control. Um, so so really, you know, I hope to, I, my one of the things I'd like to work on is a future that builds on kind of some of our previous successes that we continue to hone and revolutionize pain control in the emergency department so that it is, it is as good and as effective as
0: it can be. Mm. I think one thing that has happened in COVID, you know, when there, whether it was surges of patients or just the fact that a lot of, you know, it's just a more involved process of taking care of a lot of these patients and it can be exhausting, whether it's PPE and long hours and difficult conversations and things that your day-to-day practice as an emergency physician, in my opinion, has just become harder to do the things that we've always done. And we're still doing those things. And I'd like to think we're still doing them well, but it's, it's harder to do those things. Um, And, and in that, what I think naturally sort of happens is we kind of settle into a routine. You know, you 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 stick with the things that you do well, you know, you you, you try and take good care of patients and make connections with folks. But that type of aspirational approach and in, in terms of I, I, I really want to progress the practice. I really want to innovate and lead in a way that promotes things for our patients, you know, new procedures, like you're mentioning, new approaches, you know, whether it's pain control or other procedural competencies, you know, that type of aspirational mindset is hard to have in the midst of the the grind of the, you know, the, the, the mud and the muck of your day, day-to-day practice. And so when people like you, Don, have that type of approach, I always wonder where you get that sort of inspiration and motivation from. I mean, is it people? Is it your home life? Is it a combination of those? Family? Is it colleagues? I mean, where do you, I I have, I have an answer about where I think you get some of that from just watching you and and, and learning from you. But I'd like to hear kind of your thoughts. Where do you, where do you get that from? Where does that reservoir spring from?
1: Yeah. So that's, uh, so let me think about that. So, you know, I think we've talked about this. Maybe we have, maybe we haven't. Uh, So, you know, I think I get it from my family. Uh, I had a sister who was profoundly retarded, had severe CP, who um, couldn't talk, couldn't walk, was wheelchair-bound for her entire life. And, uh, and my parents took care of my sister for her entire life. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the reasons why people get burned out or people don't have a purpose is because they don't realize how lucky they are. Uh, And I've always had that constant reminder of how lucky and how blessed I was ever since I was a child. Um, Because I could walk, because I had a brain, because I I could run, because I was good at sports and all this other crap. But more than just that feeling of being lucky, I knew that I owed something, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, that, that, um, That my good fortune to have all these things, came with a price. And that price was, you know, you had to give something back. You had to commit to something that was better than yourself. And uh, I've owed it to my sister my entire life to kind of lead a life of purpose and a life where I was leaving the world better than I had before. And, uh, you know, that's doubled now with my mother dying. Because, you know, she was just an amazing woman. And uh, she was very selfless, not only with taking care of my sister, but in really trying to give back to the world. And uh, she was a great example. Okay, so I'm gonna now pivot to the other thing, is you're saying it's harder. And I, I think that all of us are gonna agree that it's been harder with COVID. But, but I think it's, you know, there's, there's a question between whether it's harder or whether it's more tedious, and maybe mm. it's both. Um, because it's definitely more tedious to provide care in 2021 and 2020 than it was in 2019. Uh, there's more PPE. There's more putting things on and off. But we're also less busy. We're seeing less patients, um, you know. And and I think that the big reason for burnout, you know, if if because I think you're alluding to that a little bit that you can get stuck down and you can, you can kind of you know just wonder why the hell you're doing what you're doing. And uh, and one of my favorite things about burnout is, is burnout's not about being too busy. Burnout is about forgetting about why you do the things that you do. Uh, and again, it's all about purpose, right? I, before every shift, um, will say to myself how lucky I am that I get to come in and care for patients. What a privilege that is. Um, I, I will pray to myself, and I'm not a religious guy at all, but I will hope and I'll think, uh, and I hope that, I'm, that all my training and everything I've done has made me good enough for this shift right now, and that I really um, you know, give my best to my patients. And that prevents burnout. Mm-hmm. If you remember why you do things, if you remember that you're lucky, if you remember that you have a responsibility that's much bigger than yourself, and you always keep the main thing the main thing, and those are definitely main things, um, you're gonna do a lot of good. You know, and, uh, and I think I've done a little bit of good, uh, but I hope to do a lot more of it.
0: You know, one of the ways that you can measure the success of your life is the quality of people you surround yourself with. And I'm Shit. Proud. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm proud. I'm proud that I surround myself with you and people like you. You know, can only imagine how proud... Your mom and sister must be of you. Hmm.
1: Well, you know, it's uh, there's a saying that if you're the smartest person in the room, try to find a new room, right? Uh, where you want to be surrounded by people who make you better, who think differently, who think uh, grander than you do, or who know more than you do. And, and I think that's always a calibration, right? Mm-hmm. You want to be surrounded by people who continue to inspire you, who continue to push you, who piss you off, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's ultimately how you grow. And uh, and definitely you want to have a growth mentality if you're in medicine. If you're in a place that you're like, you know, I haven't learned anything new, it's easy to go to work. It's easy to do the job that you're doing. Uh, then I'd say that you need to start pushing yourself harder because there's so much in medicine. I mean, it's, it's literally an infinite field, right? Um, there's so much possibility. Um, you owe it to yourself to push yourself.
0: Who are those people for you? The people who when you're in the room you you listen to them, you know, you they challenge you, you know, who are those people for? Don.
1: You know, so so I'm involved in the ASAP uh, pain management and addiction um, you know, I think it's section. And then there's a lot of people who I learn from and who I appreciate every single every single time I get to interact with them. Um, just because their knowledge base is so deep where I have a conversation and, and it's, wow, I've never thought of doing that before. Uh, or, or, man, I wish I knew more about how to do that. Um, and, you know, for, for this Advanced Analgesia Project, I'm working with a lot of those people, um, people like Andrew Herring or Corey Waller or Alexis LaPietra, um, you know, the, the, or the list can go on. Um and they're different people, right? That's the cool thing is you get to select what you want to learn about. And in emergency medicine at least, those people are all typically pretty happy to shoot the shit with you Mm -hmm. uh and to jump on a phone call. And uh I've never really been shy about calling people or emailing people and asking them to uh teach me or to um, you know, help me learn something new. And uh, it served my career really well. And even here, just in at Swedish, you know, we have a lot of amazing docs. Um, you know, between Chris Holmes and and between Pete and Bakes and between
0: you know Jared former, and, former unfiltered guest, yeah, <laughs> a shameless plug, good good plug, yeah. Good plug. Pete and, Bakes, as well as the award-winning Katie Bakes, the yeah. award-winning Doctor Banks, yeah.
1: And there's and there's Dylan and there's you and you know. So we're we're in a really good fishbowl when it comes to my. My clinical practice um, so I'm very fortunate for that um, yeah there's a lot of great people out there and med- emergency medicine and medicine is full of good people
0: it's true your career has touched on a lot of non-medical fields you know uh, art cinema entertainment artsy fartsy stuff yeah. <laughs> in a way that I could I mean you know I genuinely you know movies and things that you've made that are I wouldn't even know where to begin I mean do you do you have a story I've there's no prep for this interview whatsoever this everything is just being thrown at down in real time uh (laughs) but do you have a story from an interaction with somebody outside of medicine that made you change the way in which you thought about something you know your career or taking care of patients you know I I find that when you're out I love the fishbowl we're in I couldn't agree with you more and I'm challenged and that's why I am where I am but what once you step outside that fishbowl, people's perspectives can completely change the way I think about my day-to-day work and taking care of folks and, uh, you know, what, you know, truly innovation means or what, you know, uh, fulfillment in a career means, Um, you know, whether that's tech or cinema or the entertainment world. Do you have some, a story or a a little uh, experience that you can, drawn that would share kind of how those people have changed your perspective?
1: So, Nick, uh, you know, I'll I'll be honest. No story really comes to mind. (laughs) Uh, I've worked with a lot of very skilled filmmakers. I've worked with Eugene Richards, who's, uh, you know, one of the world's premier photojournalists. and here in Denver did the Knife and Gun Club back in the day.
0: Tell tell us what it's like to work with him.
1: Eugene is a very interesting dude. Yeah uh, he's, he's very talented. He's very, he's also very quirky. Um, the whole time that we worked together, I think he thought that I was trying to make money off of him or I was like hustling him for some, for some reason. Uh, the great irony being that I dedicated two years of my life to making a book that I got paid zero for (laughs) and spent probably, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours doing uh, and, and it was really all for love of specialty and I was hustling no one. So, uh, you know, he was a little bit more paranoid than I thought he would be. <laughs> but at the end, you know, I deeply respect the guy. He's, uh, he's a very talented guy who sees the world differently. And people who see the world differently sometimes have quirks, you know. Uh, and I think that's part of, you know, a lot of what I do if when it comes to film production, uh, when it comes to, you know, other production, is, I'm usually not the guy doing the artsy-fartsy stuff, right? Uh, I'm not the guy behind the camera. I, I'm the guy who's coordinating everything, hmm. who says, well, you need to get this amount of money, and this is the person we should shoot, and, you know, this is the type of story I want to tell, and then just letting the artsy-fartsy people mm-hmm. do what they do. Yeah. Um, so so there's a difference between being a producer and being someone who's like a director or an editor. Sure. Um, but... You know, it, in, and I think that probably to most honestly answer that question is, um, you know, I find it deeply fascinating to read about people. Mm. Um, and that's where I get a lot of diversity of, you know, thought, et cetera, whether it's books on philosophy or books on, or but I, I'm a big fan of reading people's biographies, like Teddy Roosevelt's biography is the one that I did, just finished most recently.
0: It's because my son's name is Theodore. That's yeah, I mean.
1: exactly. What an interesting son of a gun that guy was, by the mm. way. Because your son named
0: in part after All right, Teddy Roosevelt? this is Roosevelt. a secret just between me and you <laughs> and any the six people who listen to this podcast. So when we were driving out here, Ryan and I, in an RV, just the two of us uh, moving from D.C. to Denver, we drove cross-country We went north mm-hmm. up through the Dakotas. And we stopped at this town in western North Dakota called Medora, M-E-D-O-R-A. Oh, yeah. I know it
1: well. Yeah, because that's where Teddy Roosevelt used to go out for hunts and Yes. Stuff. yes. So...
0: Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, scenic. Uh, they do this, um, this is a shameless plug for Medora. They do something called the Medora Musical every year from Memorial Day to Labor Day. Every single night, I think they take 4th of July off. And it's like a two-hour celebration of Americana. And it is Broadway-level quality outdoor musical. Um Folks who've graduated from Juilliard or other performing arts schools in the Northeast have a gap from when they graduate in the spring until when they start in Broadway in the fall, and they come out to this no, nowhere podunk town <clears throat> in western North Dakota, and they put on this incredible show. So my wife and I went to this Medora musical. There's a Teddy Roosevelt reenacting actor there, and it's in the, it's the gateway to Teddy Roosevelt National Park, um, and had just an incredibly special special unforgettable time and that is the genesis of our uh of my son's name theodore and he's also he is my favorite president true, wow true, true, true that story. is that so, is pretty awesome yeah okay so I'll look at that we should go to medora because it is a it is a special special place <laughs> special place <laughs> that's so cool but anyways you were talking about teddy roosevelt and your love of reading biographies yeah
1: go I on. Think, well people are deeply fascinating right um so yeah, I think that's one of the places you get a diversity of opinion is you read about or you listen to, listen to stories about people, right? Um, and I love podcasts too, which is part of the reason why we have EMM as a podcasting mm-hmm. company and why we do this is because I find that audio, listening to people's stories, listening to voices is a great way for me to learn
0: and to be inspired. That is the exact reason I host Unfiltered. Ostensibly, it is for, you know, the proliferation of information and getting, you know, getting people an in inside view into people like you or Ricky Dollywall or the Bakes and all these great folks that we've interviewed over, unfiltered over the, almost a year that we've been doing unfiltered. Uh, mm-hmm. How long has it been? year and a half. year and a half. Mason tells me it's been a year and a half. <laughs> Time is a flat circle, as yeah. Matthew McConaughey says. Yeah. But the reality is, is it's selfish. Oh, yeah. I... Learn so much from sitting here and listening to people talk, mm-hmm. and just carving out a special hour of my life mm-hmm. to get to meet people is is a privilege. Yeah,
1: it's a privilege. It's, it's one of the coolest things about making documentaries and books and podcasts is people talk when there's a microphone in front of them mm-hmm. or when there's an opportunity. Uh, so I've also benefited from the same thing. I've had people um, who I've learned from and admired for a long time who I've formed a relationship with, whether that's Peter Rosen or Judith Tentinelli or Mel, Mel Herbert, or, you know, all these, these titans of emergency Mm -hmm. medicine. Um, I've gotten to speak with them and learn from them because I asked them to tell me their story. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've definitely been on the receiving end of many Mm -hmm. of those and my how we've fallen, if you're interviewing me, (laughs) (laughs) You, the the well must be pretty dry, my
0: friend. It's been a long pandemic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I thought you wanted to give people hope,
0: Nick, <laughs> not,
1: <laughs> not throw them further into despair. I have
0: looked forward to I know your story, you know, but I I learn something new about your story every time we talk about your story, whether it's over whiskey at your house or uh, over you know a microphone here in the EMM studio. I learn something new about your story. Such. Such an important part of your story you can tell from the inflection in your voice uh, is your mom, and I'm sorry for your loss. How did she shape the story of Don Stater? You know, I love I love stories. I love human beings and the the stories that made them the way that they are. And I I usually start podcasts with an origin story, um, but you know I switched it up because I didn't want you to get comfortable. (laughs) I didn't want you to have any preparation whatsoever. (laughs) Oh, good, good. (laughs) But how did your mom um, help chart the course of the story of Don Stater? Well,
1: literally, without my mom, I wouldn't be here. That's well said. that's true for all of us. so true. Well said. (laughs) No, uh, you know, she was very formative. Uh, I think that I was part of a State Department family, right? Mm. So uh, I've never lived anywhere for more than five years of my life. Uh, So moving was a part of every you know every few years uh and when you do that when you move every few years um you find that you're a lot closer to your family that's one of the experiences of um third culture kids is kind of you know the the catch-all phrase for them, right um is and so i was very close to my parents uh and my mother especially you know me and my mom had a very special bond Uh, and i think it's because temperamentally we're pretty similar um and uh, and she was just an amazing woman. Like I said, she was, you know, amazing in many ways. She fled from Vietnam to a country that she did not know with her sister, mm. alone, and started to carve out a life. Uh, she had a uh, you know her first child with my with my dad was someone who had severe disabilities, but she didn't complain. And then she had the audacity to have more kids and to take care of, you know, my sister. And I thought that was a very valuable lesson. Um, and then at every turn of my mom's life, you know, my mom got a buy on a lot of kindness and a lot of charisma. Uh, I think I have some of the kindness, maybe not any of the charisma <laughs> my mom had. Uh, but, you know, but but she taught me the value of treating people the right way, whether they're affluent, whether they're impoverished um, and whether they're from different walks of life than you. Um, so I think that she taught me a lot of lessons. Uh, and then most recently, you know, my mom taught me how to die and, uh, and that was a very, you know, I've always been fascinated with how we deal with death in, uh, in this country um, and, and her death really did teach me a lot. It was a very formative part of uh, my last year.
0: Do you feel comfortable talking about that? Nobody feels yeah. comfortable talking about death in the entirety uh, you know, of American you, you, society. No,
1: I think I think that it's difficult. But you know, whether it's a question of comfort, I mean, it's a it's a emotional subject. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, I, I'm happy to talk with it. Um, I mean, we're just in an intimate room with uh, you, me, Mason, and you know your six listeners, as you mentioned before. <laughs>
0: Uh, so um, sure, I'll, I'll talk about it. We, when we encounter death in the emergency department, mm-hmm. it, to me, it, it comes in a couple of different forms. There is the the most tragic form, which is young, and entirely unexpected. The young kid in the car crash, mm-hmm. you know, a young person with overdose. Although, unfortunately, there's oftentimes, as as we know, as you know red flags for that, and 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 that person has unfortunately fallen through the cracks along the way. All the way through to the individual who, you know, was on hospice and was prepared for this and was as much as you can be prepared for death. And then there's a full kind of spectrum in the middle of that. And so we encounter death in the emergency department in all of those places. and And each of those comes with profound sadness and difficulty for family and friends and loved ones. And we kind of touch on that in our own unique way in each in each of those cases. But one overlying theme that I think I, I see is that we're never prepared. We're never prepared. Even when, and, and that's true in my personal life, and it's when the moment comes when that person who has meant so much to you is that as time is of the very possible, the very shortest possible time left, there is still a piece of that that is unexpected, unbelievable, unable to be processed or fully tr- genuinely understood. Um, how did that, where were you guys kind of in that s- spectrum and how, How have you processed processed that in the time since it's happened? You know, how do you apply or assign meaning to different experiences that you've had as time grew short with your mom? Can you, in whatever way you feel comfortable doing so, just talk about kind of how you personally went through that process? Because you you have the background of being an emergency physician who's seen death. Mm -hmm. You've seen it across the full spectrum of death. Um, How did it touch you and your family personally?
1: I mean, any death, especially of someone that you love, is a tragedy, right? There's a, and there's predictable tragedies in your life. Like most of us are going to have to say goodbye to our parents, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, f- fingers crossed, not many of us will have to say goodbye to our children, although it, it does happen. Um, and I think that it being tragic and you feeling emptiness and sadness is just really part of that human condition. It's part of life and it's part of the maturing aspect of life. You know, um, I was never really an adult until I had kids. That's how I feel with it, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, you know, because kids have taught me so much and your brain changes when you have kids, right? There's, you know, you're no longer the center of the universe, Mm and rightfully so. Mm -hmm. Um, I think your brain changes also when you lose people that are close to you. And diff- different ways for different people. You know, I think my mom's death is going to be kinder. Maybe a little less ambitious. But definitely kinder. I think a lot about how to treat people better. So that's a blessing. Now, um... In terms of what happened, I mean, I think it's a story that's worth sharing. I mean,
0: mm.
1: not that it's easy to share, but, uh, you know, maybe therapeutic. Who knows? You can be my shrink.
0: Take the time you need. Yeah. Um, woefully underqualified for that. <laughs> but well, also woefully underqualified to be a podcast. So, <laughs> for the course. You're doing fine with that. Um,
1: you know, so so my mom was very healthy. Uh, she was, you know, an extremely vigorous 74-year-old. Uh and she actually uh, did not first get sick with COVID. She got sick uh, with a hip fracture. She was walking with my dad and turned and fell and broke her broke her hip. Uh, and she had a rather unremarkable surgery, uh, was sent to a rehab facility. And it was actually at the rehab facility that she got COVID. So just part of kind of just thought, that was the first tragedy, that she broke her hip. The second was that she got COVID because, you know, In medicine, sometimes we don't do the best about screening people or, you know, making sure that people, you know, aren't working when they're sick. I mean, universities do a better job in screening people who have COVID and the NBA and all these other places. Screen patients regularly for COVID. And in medicine, we've decided it's probably a little better that we just put our heads in the sand. Mm. And you've had this experience, right? Yes. You've you've never been tested for COVID once while working as an ER doctor, nor have I. Um, So my mom got COVID at the rehab. And... uh, at first did really well. Um, looked like she was doing good. And, uh, I was actually going to fly home to take care of her and, uh, help her with some of her rehab because her time in inpatient rehab was ending when she became profoundly hypoxic. And we've all seen this with COVID too. People put her around for a week or two and then boom, they just friggin' fall off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was definitely the case with her. Um, and my mom was pretty critically ill for around a month back and forth. Um, to, you know, first uh, in the hospital, then in the ICU. Uh, And I I went out to visit her for around a week the first time she was in the ICU. And I'd say that the biggest privilege that I've had is the fact I was able to see her. Mm. Because we know so many families are robbed of that opportunity to spend time with the the people that they love because of COVID. And uh, because of my stature as a physician and because it was also part of uh, the same hospital system, the hospital my mm-hmm. mom was cared for. Mm. Um, I was allowed access and had to PPE gown and everything every time I saw her, uh, but was able to spend a lot of time with her. Um, and man, she was strong. Uh, she she wore BiPAP on her face for I think like nine straight days, 10 straight days. Mm. Had, uh, you know, everything that happens when that happens, skin breakdown on your face, etc. But she would never complain, you know. Uh, and then we weaned her at one point to high-flow nasal cannula, uh, and she was actually able to talk with me for a little bit, and we had some great conversations. But I asked her once, "Do you think you're going to die?" And she said, "Yes," you know. And that was, I think, one of my first. My first, uh, you know, when she was on bipap, I asked her that, uh, and you know, she said she nodded to me yes, and that was one of my first indications. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, she looked like she was going to survive. She had been titrated, high, heated high flow. We are working on titrating that down. And uh, I left my mom's hospital to go back and spend dinner with my dad. And then I got one of those calls, you know, probably an hour afterwards. That my mom's heated high flow nasal cannula had become dislodged or was taken off. Who knows? And, uh, and you know, after, after that, that she had had a respiratory arrest and could have been intubated. Uh, so I, I went back to the hospital to an intubated mother wondering if she was, you know, how she was going to do. And, and I asked to see the rhythm strip and, uh, you know, because I know what that is, and the pulse ox. And uh, the saddest part of that was my mother had removed her oxygen And it had become hypoxic probably two minutes afterwards, but it had not been recognized and the code had not been called for around 30 minutes. And I think about that a lot. What that time must have felt like. I was pretty angry. I think I was rightfully angry sometimes. But that in an ICU that someone can be hypoxic for that long and be allowed to die was a bit of an abomination. And I think, I think that taught me a lot about anger and about resentment and about how toxic that is. That night I remember just laying in bed and being like, I'm, you know, just going to sue the fuck out of that and I'm going to try to get everyone's license and you know the fact that my mom was allowed to die for 30 minutes before I was recognized and I realized that that's not helpful it's not the way that I would want to be treated if I made a significant mistake and I don't think that's what my mom would have wanted she would not have wanted revenge. My mom, and I know this, ultimately cared deeply and was very thankful for the people who cared for her, the people who made a mistake, an honest mistake. So I learned a lot, a lot about mercy and grace and forgiveness. And how important, how important those things are. You know, ultimately, so that was a tragedy. My mom survived, uh, you know, on an ET tube for probably another 10 days. I flew back home, but I kept in touch with her doctors and, uh, you know, I would always ask them. They'd give me all these reports. And this is a, one of the big cardinal sins around medicine, right? Is we want to talk medicine. And at least I'm a doctor. I can talk medicine. Mm-hmm. I really didn't give a shit what my mom's grant was or what oppressors were or whatever. You know, I cared about the, the things that meant something to my family and meant something to my father. Is my mom going to survive? Is my mom brain dead? What does her future look like? And, you know, I talked with all these doctors who, oh, it's I don't know, I don't know. Then I talked to the doctor who said, you know, I really don't think this is going to go well. And I said, well, if it's not going to go well, I know exactly what my mom wanted. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to be hooked up to a machine. So I flew home and, uh, and got off a plane with my brother, who was thankfully in town from Singapore. And I went to my mom's, you know, to the hospital the same night I flew in. And uh, I talked with the doc, and I sat by my mother. We weaned all her sedation, and I terminally extubated her. You know, not the respiratory therapist. It was, you know, I thought it was important. She gave me life, and on the other end of that, I wanted to give her a good death. So we terminally extubated her, and, you know, surprisingly, she did great on nasal cannula for a while. That's not surprising. Yeah. So she, uh, you know, we had a good conversation. She could, she was too hoarse, but she knew why I was there. And she knew why I was there. Mm. She knew that it was time. Uh, and we spent a good few hours together. Now, at the end of it, I think that she became a little too hypercarbic to, uh, to mentate well. But she was still sitting well and uh i knew like you know she we'd, we'd given her a few doses of stuff for anxiety and for for air hunger uh, but it was really hard to take off that i hated high flow you know and i was with my mom like we are the only two human beings in that room for hours uh, but i still needed to call someone to say is this okay to do mm. you know and i'll be forever in debt you know dr warner was the one who helped uh, really kind of ferry me and my family through a lot of that. Mm. And I'll forever be in debt to her because she's the one who reassured me. She said, it's okay. So I moved her. He did high flow and I held her. And she died in my arms. Which was a blessing. A good
0: blessing. So yeah, that's how it happened we could do unfiltered for a hundred years and never hear a more powerful story or a more meaningful story or a more honorable story.
1: Yeah. Well, now you're fluffing me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but
1: no, I, I appreciate it and I appreciate the opportunity to share it. And if someone gets something good for it, then it's it's worth it.
0: I know there will be. There's a country that's got families and loved ones of over five hundred thousand people
1: mm-hmm. who have that's, similar stories, you know, and that's the biggest tragedy, right? It's uh, it's the fact that people didn't get to say goodbye. Mm. The fact that so many people died alone, and I think about that oftentimes. You know, one of the things this has made me better at is calling families. Mm. <laughs> you know, I think all of us have felt that inconvenience, right? You're just trying to get through and practice medicine and, you know, do all of those things. But the importance of actually reaching out and calling a family member, um, that's that's a lot That's a lot more significant than it was before. Because uh, I've now been on the other line where I know what it's like to feel like an inconvenience. Mm. An inconvenience to get an update, an inconvenience to... You know, talk with a nurse or with a doctor, who I know is just busy as hell. Um, but but at the end of the t- at the end of the line, that family member is worried; they're suffering. You know, they they want to be there, even though they can't. And again, COVID's robbed a lot of people of that, and it's a great tragedy.
0: Thank you, Don. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are we going to end it something happier? I was <laughs> <laughs> just going to end it right there. <laughs> This has been unfiltered with Don Starr. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. something happier, I think, yeah. is the memory that you've just given us. Yeah. Well. And what what a special opportunity it has been for me to hear it. And mm-hmm. for anybody who's fortunate enough to listen to you today, you know, that we're from this recording today, anybody that gets to hear it, what a blessing that is.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one thing you you we originally started down this track because it, it was about end of life care, mm. mm-hmm. and uh, and I do still feel like we do that so terribly in medicine, um, and, and some of it, you know, I went through with my mom is that we're not willing to have honest conversations uh, with patients whose family members are dying, and uh, and. There's a concept in Buddhism about what's called idiot compassion. And and I see it as a mistake that's being made oftentimes in terms of pain control, in terms of um, end of life care, right? Where it's easier to tell people a nice lie because you don't want them to suffer than it is to tell them the truth. And that concept of idiot compassion means that you're actually prolonging and worsening their suffering, when you don't have the, um, when you don't have the, I'm not sure the right term, backbone, when you don't have the, um, you know, honesty to tell people the truth. That's a tremendous disservice. And I've seen it happen time and time again, right? Where there's someone who has a subarachnoid hemorrhage, that they've got hydrocephalus and you know the surgeon looks at it and they say, Well, this person's dead. And and then what you do is you offer them surgery. To what ends? Right? Uh, or the person who we all know is more bound and, you know, we still do things to that person. And, you know, that comes at a tremendous cost, not only to our medical system, but I think it comes at a tremendous human cost. Because so often when a person's in an OR or an ICU or something else, they're not with their family. They're alone. Yep. yep. And, and really, to me, um, we have to make death much more human again. We have to let people know the options, but also know, hey, this is your family member, your family member is going to die. And the trade-off between a Hail Mary and, uh, and allowing them a natural death might be the fact that you don't get to spend any time with them
0: Mm.
1: Uh, and to refocus people because i think you know it's always funny people want to play doctor when it comes to end-of-life care for their family they don't know what a creatinine is they don't know what a presser is they don't know all the medicines we're doing but suddenly there's this deep interest in googling all this shit (laughs) and saying well i what if we do this and what if we do that and and really, you just have to refocus. And I tried to do this with myself all the time when I was with my mom in her final days. Is I said to myself, "I'm I'm here to be my mom's son. Do I have a good amount of medical knowledge? Yes. But am I going to question the vasopressors we're using or question this management a little bit? I did a little bit, but really, my my principal purpose was there to be her son. And that's really, I think, one of the things we can tell family members, too, is, you know, I'd, I'm happy to be your loved one's doctor. That's I went through a fuckload of school to do that, in fact, <laughs> right? And have a good amount of experience doing that. But what I need you to be is I need you to be the husband, the son, the daughter, the family member that your mom would want in a time like this, right? Or your family would want in a time like this. And I want to tell you how important it is for you, for your soul, for your well-being, to be at that bedside and to tell your loved one how much they mean to you. Mm -hmm. To tell them sorry for anything that you've done wrong. To tell them thank you. And to tell them I love you, right? You only get one shot to tell someone. That on the way out sometimes. And we rob a lot of people of that Mm -hmm. shot, you know? So it's made me a lot more human about death. I was already kind of fascinated with this stuff and and passionate about it because I thought that we fucked up the human component of dying a lot. Uh but redoubled those efforts, you know? Giving people good deaths, a death like my mom had, um, should be one of the biggest goals of medicine. Not the full hearted goal that everyone's gonna live forever. We've 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 <laughs> We've succeeded in making no one live forever. Uh, but we sure as hell can succeed in making people's quality of life as good as it can be for as long as it can be. But then when the time, is, when the time has come, to give people human deaths.
0: There's no more important calling. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. If time were short, what would your family member want to be doing? And mm-hmm. what, would, what would you want to be doing with your family member? yeah exactly and time is short mm-hmm. and I mean, that's
1: a lot harder to do than to say well they're going to surgery or well we started them on this vasopressor and they're going to the icu um that's safer it's that's, safer
0: for us it's it's I more don't know. comfortable it's i don't know if
1: it is safer for us right i would have been less angry if they would have told me we made a mistake right? Initially, I mean, I'm no longer angry. If they said, listen, your mom's been hypoxic for a while. We don't know what happened, but the alarm was not heard or not listened to. And we've made a mistake. I would have been less, I would have been less angry. Right. Um, so, so I do think that, you know, I, I, guess it gets back to the, the, the concept of being honest with people. Right. Um, I think oftentimes we try to soften blows that are devastating. The death of someone is a devastating thing. There's no softening that, Mm. right? You can give the news in a compassionate way and then refocus on what's going to be less traumatizing for that patient and that person as they move forward in life. Uh, Not giving them a bunch of idiot compassion and hoping that things turn out for the best. Um, Yeah. I don't know what more I have to say. <laughs> 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 well, thanks for the opportunity, Nick. It's uh, it's kind of surreal to be a subject of a podcast uh, not on the other side of the table. So uh, so thank you for that. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about, you know, things that are important. We don't have enough important conversations mm-hmm. uh, nowadays. So it's important. So it's good to have one every once in a while. Okay,
0: the, the privilege is mine, and the privilege is our listeners for the chance to share in that. Share in your vulnerability. It, you know it's raw, and despite the, the efforts that you clearly have taken to process it and to deal with it, and but it's raw and it's pain and it's such a tragedy and it's mm. vulnerable, but it's a beautiful story. Oh yeah, it's a beautiful story with a beautiful ending and one that. I'm privileged to hear. Yeah. And,
1: and it's got good lessons, you yeah. know, good lessons for me as a physician, for me as a human being, you know, it's a, it's, it's a tragedy, no question, but it's a tragedy that, that's made me a
0: better person. You said you wanted to end on something brighter and then there it is. There it is yeah. right there.
1: Yep. Yeah. Good, good, good allegory for this year, right? Yeah. It's, this last year, this epidemic um, is a tragedy, but hopefully, it makes us better people, a better nation, um, better caregivers, better doctors, and you know,
0: healthcare workers. Um, I really hope it does. This has been unfiltered. This is Nick Sippus, and we're also privileged to have heard from Dr. Don Stater. Thank you, Don. Thank you. The Emergency Medical Minute would like to thank our sponsor, Swedish Medical Center, for helping fund our nonprofit organization and make this podcast possible. Donations are essential to our organization to cover operational costs and fund the creation of our online courses offering AMA, PRA, Category 1 credits. So if you enjoy our show, and if you're able to make a one-time or recurring donation towards our organization, any amount is helpful. Please click the link in our show notes to make a donation